0: Well, good evening and welcome to our Wednesday evening streaming as we work in our way through the book of Hebrews. This evening, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 9. A couple of years ago, I went on a guided tour around a stately home. Now, um, you'll have to forgive me, but I'm not often a fan of guided tours. The, the reasons being is because I've got a really short attention span, and also I think inside of me there's a bit of the inner rebel just wants to get out, and I much prefer to explore than I do being told where to go. But on this particular occasion, it was a guided tour. There was no option to go exploring on your own, and you go around this stately home, or imagine you're you going around a castle if you've, if you've done a guided tour in that kind of place, and there's always areas that you can't go to. So in this particular house, we went past a couple of doors, and I'm thinking, I wonder what is behind those doors? I wonder what is there? I wonder what excitement lies behind that mysterious looking wooden door? And so my mind starts racing, and you're sort of thinking, I wonder if there's a secret passage, I wonder if there's some hidden dungeon down in the depths underneath this particular place. Now, the reality is probably much more mundane. There's probably a vacuum cleaner behind that door, or a load of cleaning materials. But there's something about mystery that captures us, isn't there? There's something about the hidden and the unknown that sets the imagination going. As Christians, as people who worship God, there is always something of God that actually we can't understand. The very nature of God, if you like, with the God who we can know through Jesus, but God who is spirit, who Paul will tells us dwells in unapproachable light, who we cannot see. And there is always, and it's right that we keep it there, that sense of mystery as we approach God. The original readers of the book of Hebrews, they, they were a largely Jewish audience, and at the centre of Jewish worship was the temple And at the heart of the temple was mystery. Mystery, the hiddenness of God. Ancient Israelite worship had built into it rituals and the sense that actually you could only approach God through sacrifices, sacrifices of animals and through law observance. Now in the tabernacle, the tabernacle was the the original place of worship that happened uh, where people met after the, the events of the Exodus and in both the tabernacle, then later in the temple, behind a great big curtain was a place called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. And it was hidden, It it was the place of the presence of God, and only the high priest could go in there, and only then once a year. At the centre of Jewish worship, of Israelite worship, was the mystery, the holiness, the otherness of God. In 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey attacked Jerusalem and defeated the armies of Jerusalem and um, thus ending sort of self-rule for Israel for almost two millennia. But as he entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple and he insisted on going behind the curtain in the temple, looking into the Holy of Holies. Whether he was expecting to see some magnificent idol or something, I'm not quite sure. But apparently he left quite disappointed that there was nothing there. The mystery, the holiness of God. If you've got a good memory and can think back to when we started this Hebrew series, and this was when life was still a little bit more normal, we were still able to meet in church, you may just remember that actually the book of Hebrews, we think, was written sometime in the mid-60s AD. So the Temple of Jerusalem fell in, in AD 70, never to be rebuilt, but up until that time, sacrifices were still going on daily at the Temple. And Hebrews 9, and don't, don't worry, we will get to it in a moment, It's a pivotal passage in scripture in the sense that what it does is it describes how Jesus both fulfills and supersedes the Old Covenant. And he also makes it obsolete. The writer tells us that through the New Covenant, in Jesus' blood, we can know God for eternity. The way into the holy place is open. The way into the heavenly tabernacle, the very throne room of God, because of the blood of Christ, is available to all all who trust him. So we're going to look at this question this evening. Why did Jesus die? Why did he die? And then we're going to sort of follow that on with what does it mean to live a life with the cross of Jesus at the centre? So if you do have a Bible close at hand and you want to turn to this, um, we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 9. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read from verses 11 through to verse 22, and then read verse 27 and 28 at the end of the chapter. So this is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but entered the most holy place, once for all, by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. In the case of a will it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all people he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything he cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And then verses 27 and 28. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Let's just pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the giving of your Son. And we thank you that because of him, we can enter into the most holy place and know you as our heavenly and loving Father. So we just pray that as we unpack these difficult words, that by your Spirit, you will just open them up to us, help our hearts to be challenged and transformed, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, it's a question, isn't it? That for 2,000 years, people have reflected on, they've discussed, there are many complex theories that have been developed as to why Jesus died on the cross and what was actually happening. The cross of Jesus Christ is probably the world's most easily recognised symbol. Even in a largely secular culture, it still holds a huge amount of prominence. On your screen at the moment is a, is a picture of the cross that's at the front of our church. Don't worry, it's still standing, even though we can't gather around us at the moment. But as we drive round, we see crosses on buildings. We see crosses on cenotaphs and war memorials. We see it on gravestones. We see people still wearing jewellery with a cross on it. And it's largely a universal symbol in the sense that wherever the Christian church is free of persecution and able to worship, we use this cross to signify that at the centre of our faith is the cross of Jesus Christ. This symbol is justly popular. But it's actually not a sanitised symbol. But it's a symbol of the cross where Jesus died as sacrifice, where he gave his everything for us. It's the place where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, if there is but another way, God, would you take away this cup of suffering, but not your will, but mine. It's a horrendous place. But the cross of Jesus is the place of freedom. It can be very tempting I think as Christians to to read up, to to watch um, YouTube clips, to, to listen to podcasts about all kinds Of really um, interesting and relevant topics. and Both Claire and I have just finished a book called Where is God in the Coronavirus, written by John Lennox. I would recommend it to you. It's well worth a read. But it just amazes me that somebody already has um, written a book and got it published. But there are so many great things we can explore, aren't there? You may be um, a Christian, and you may have been a Christian for many years, and you like reading and you've read books on it. It might be, I don't know, Christian worship or the gift of the Spirit or sharing our faith in, in different contexts. But I wonder when the last time was that we actually sat down and either read or seriously thought through what is going on on the cross where Jesus died. Just think about how important the cross is to the writers of the New Testament. When you read the Gospels, there's a huge amount of time given over to those events leading up to Calvary and then through to the resurrection. As you read through Paul's letters, as you read through Hebrews and the other writings of the New Testament, again, significant chunks are taken up, talking about what happened when Jesus died for us. Compare that to, say, the events around Christmas. There's just a minuscule amount. And sometimes I think we get that balance not quite right. So let's dive into Hebrews chapter 9. You will need to keep your Bibles open. We will be sort of going through it um, a little bit verse by verse. Verse 11. We've had the narratives about the Old Covenant. And if you get the chance to read the early part of the chapter, we've sort of had a guided tour of the ancient tabernacle, a bit of a mystery tour around what was going on. And we get to look and see some of the objects. But the writer says, actually, don't dwell too much on that. That actually isn't what is important now. What is important now is Jesus. So in verse 11, we get this teaching that actually what Jesus has done Is not gone through into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, but he's gone into a heavenly tabernacle, into the very throne room of God. Not through the sacrifice of bulls or goats, but through the shedding of his own blood. Verse 12, Jesus, who is both fully human and fully God, chapter 4, verse 5, has already told us that he was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. And so the perfect son of God enters into the most holy place. We'll come back to this whole concept of shedding of blood in a few moments. And the writer says in doing that he gained our eternal redemption. This word redemption really means to buy back and it was a word that was used often in the slave markets about buying slaves. But here it's used that we are bought back from sin. The temple in Jerusalem, where there were lots of sacrifices made, it it did remove sin, but it was only ever a temporary arrangement. Whereas actually, what Jesus does is he removes sin, but removes it from all eternity. Donald Guthrie writes this, he says, since the redemption to be secured was eternal, it was necessary for the offering to be made by one with an eternal spirit. And the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is God. He has always been with God. He will always be with God and with the Holy Spirit. They are eternal, co-existent. Just in case you want to follow something else up from verse um, 15, it also talks about the Spirit being eternal. One of those important proof texts that also reminds us that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, co-equal and eternal. Verse 15, Christ is now the mediator of a new covenant, one that guarantees our eternal inheritance. Christ, it says, has died as a ransom to set them free. Well, let's just take a breather for a moment. This is all quite complicated stuff, isn't it? And it can all sound quite technical. Um, I've I've said it before and I've heard lots of people say it before. Isn't, Isn't it great that the gospel is so simple? Isn't it great that we can summarise the good news that that Christ died so that we may live and know God, both in this life and forever? And in many ways, that is true. But as we read a passage like this, what we also encounter is that the gospel is, is one of those things that you can just keep digging and digging. And there is always more to find out, always more to discover. Thursday last week I had um, a day off, I'd missed a, a day off the week before so we had an extra one to take last week and our car was due for a service so I had the first trip out that I've had for many weeks because the garage was actually open where it was to be serviced and we've got a Honda Civic and we bought it from Cheshire Oaks Honda so it has to go over there for its service. So on Thursday trundled over there and the car got the work done that it needed. If I describe our car in its absolute basic, sort of bare-bones description, it's a white estate car that seats five people, it has an engine in it, and if you know how to drive it, you can get in it and travel to where you want to go. Now, that's a basic description of the car, and you now know it's a Honda Civic, you could probably find it in a car park. But that is only the tip of the iceberg, as I was to find out on Thursday. Because our car needed um, the air conditioning regassing. Now, it, to me, it sounds a very complicated process. And I, I was having a socially distanced conversation with a technician afterwards. And he was explaining what was, happened, what was happening and what needed to be done. And he said, and we then check it with UV lights. And we go around and we make sure there's no leaks. And we look at the condenser and we look at this part and that part. And I just thought, you know, I understand so little of what is going on in a car. And that's just the air conditioning unit. Supposing we talked about the gearbox, or the clutch, or the stereo, or the electrics, or goodness knows what else that's in a car. You can just keep pulling it apart. You can keep understanding at a deeper and deeper level. And in a sense, the work of Christ is like this. The more we dig down, the more we find there is to understand. Now, we can keep digging to find more information, but actually, we're not just after information as Christians, are we? We're after transformation. And one thing that I find is the more I understand about what was going on on the cross, the more I understand about the work of Jesus, actually the more I love him, the more I realise that I need a saviour. So verses 15 down to verses 22. These are difficult verses. They're very difficult, I think, in our contemporary culture to understand, not least because of the sort of cultural void that now exists. A first century Jewish Christian was was used to the temple. They were used to the blood and death that went with it. The temple in Jerusalem, and probably many pagan temples around the Roman world as well, were were much more like a mixture of an abattoir and a butcher's than they would be to anything like what we would think of as a place of worship, like a church or a, a cathedral or similar. And if we could transport ourselves back into, say, AD 65 and go to the temple... I think our senses would be reeling. The place would absolutely stink. There would be all this blood everywhere from sacrifices. There'd probably be flies buzzing around all these carcasses. It would be um, noisy and smelly, and it would all be under the baking hot Mediterranean sun. It would probably be a pretty horrendous spectacle. Yet what this did to the, the people of the time is it made it very obvious that sin had a price that in order to atone for sin, these animals had to die. And it made it very blatant, very in-your-face, that actually sin was a serious thing. Now over the centuries, our world, particularly probably the last 300 years, has become much more sanitised. And we like to keep death of, of all sorts at an arm's length, whether it's the death of animals or even the death of people. And I think one of the reasons why the current pandemic is, is shocking us so much is that we've got used to a background narrative that says, I think it was the, the song that Tony Blair had playing in 1997, that things can only get better. And then suddenly we find that this virus kicks in and everything is thrown up in the air. But to a first century Jew, they would have known that sin had a price. They would have seen all those animals being used to pay the price of atonement for their sin. Now to us this is shocking. We don't live in that world. In our Western world we certainly don't see any religious groups who sacrifice animals in public. We find this whole spectacle something that can fill us with horror. Yet actually as we go through the scriptures, right back to the book of Genesis, we find out that actually it's our sin, our rebellion against God, that causes death. The minute that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, actually what happens is that they start to die. Not immediately, but they start to go down that slow decay of the human frame that ends in the grave. And what the Bible will show us is that only when another life is given can our sin then be paid for. And so we find in this passage that Jesus is both the one who takes our sin eternally but also is the one, because he himself was sinless, that death had no claim on him. So Jesus is the one who then rises from the dead, destroys the grip of sin on us, and enables us to know him forever and ever. And this evening, the good news is that if we're in Christ, death will have no hold on us because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus rose from the dead, and we too, in Christ, will be raised as well. There's just another interesting word in verse 15 before we carry on, and it's the word ransom. And this has caused all kinds of questions over the centuries. Who is this ransom paid to? Who is God buying us back from? Oregon, in the second and third centuries, suggested that actually we were being bought back from Satan. That somehow God God owed the devil, if you like, a, a payment because he had enslaved us. But actually, that doesn't seem to, to reflect what is going on in the Bible. Actually, we are being ransomed from our own sin, from our own rebellion against God. Just think for a moment about how our lives seldom actually reflect what God calls them to. What does Jesus say? The greatest command is, love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. One of my favourite verses from the Old Testament, Micah 6, verse 8, it says, He has shown you, O mortal man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It has become quite unfashionable in some Christian circles to talk about sin, to talk about our rebellion against God, to talk about repentance and the need to live a holy life. And it is, and, you know, as a preacher, I, I, I get this, it is a lot easier to talk about the unconditional love of God, the love of God that draws us in, the love of God that, that just walks with us, and the, the plans that God has for each of us. Now, all that stuff is, is amazingly true. But, you know, love isn't love without justice. Love isn't love. God's love isn't really loving if it turns a blind eye to atrocities. You know, as I look at the world, and as, even as I look into my own heart, I'm sometimes appalled, even in myself, of the things that I find there. Those things don't need soothing. They need dealing with. They need sorting out. When we look at the world and we see the huge injustices between rich and poor, and some people live with, with excess while others live in poverty, when we see how children are sold as sex slaves, when we see governments who would rather spend money on weapons or giving money to corporations than feeding their own people, then the call to repentance, the call of Jesus to repent for the kingdom of God is close at hand comes into sharpened view. Can I just really encourage us never to be Christians who just offer a soothing soundtrack to the world? Without a remedy for sin, The Christian faith makes no sense whatsoever. Let's not be those who offer a saviourless Christianity. See, the cross is not about being nice. In fact, it is anything but. The cross shows us the seriousness of sin. It shows us our desperate need of a saviour and the overwhelming love of God who gives himself for us to buy us back from our own rebellion against him. I think it's the Christianity Explored course that has something of a, a sort of strap line or it used to, that was something like this. It was, it was along the lines of, we are more sinful than we ever thought, but we are more loved than we could ever imagine. And so at the cross, we see these two things. We see both the seriousness of, of our rebellion against God. But we see how God responds in just reaching out to us, giving of himself, buying us back, paying for our eternal redemption, taking everything on himself so that we can know him. So moving on, verses 16 to 18, we get an analogy of a will used. When a person writes a will, you only benefit from it after that person has died. And that's the illustration there, that actually saying we only benefit from Jesus' sacrifice, from Jesus' self-giving, because he has died. And then down to verse 22, where there's another very powerful and stark verse in many ways, where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the death of Christ, there is no hope. As I was uh, prepping this week and and sort of really getting to grips with what is going on in in chapter 9, something really stood out to me that I don't think I've really noticed before. The whole point of this part of Hebrews is that Christ has died once for all. He has come as our ransom. He has stood in the gap. He gives this perfect sacrifice that satisfies God, that pays for our sin, that defeats sin and death. And there is now no need for the sacrifice of bulls and goats anymore. It's all been done in Christ. And yet this is what I'd never really thought about. This is written to a Jewish audience, to Jewish Christians. People who before they had got to know that Jesus was the Messiah had been steeped in the teachings of the Old Covenant, probably going along to the temple, possibly taking part in all those um, sacrifices that were going on. And now they're being told, you don't need to do that anymore, Jesus has done it all. Just imagine, just try and step into the shoes of being a first century Jewish Christian for a moment. And you're being told that actually, the law of Moses, all this stuff has been fulfilled in Christ and you are now free to serve him, to love him, to look forward to that day when you will be with him forever. You see, none of our lives should ever be the same when we've come face to face with the crucified Messiah. For all of us, worship is no longer about ritual. It's no longer about a trip to a holy place. Because the very throne room, the holy of holies, the presence of God himself, is accessible to us. Worship is not an earthbound ritual, but a heaven-centered knowing of God himself. Yet how often it is as human beings that we like to cling on to rituals, that we like to do things that we we can touch or taste and see and to put things in the sort of the place where Jesus actually stands in the gap for us. And we can very easily end up with a Jesus plus type of spirituality. And the church has experienced many of these over the centuries. So it can be, well, it's Jesus plus you have to do a lot of good works to be acceptable to Christ. Or it's Jesus, plus you have to make sure you pray at certain times of day and say certain words to be acceptable to Christ. Or it's Jesus, plus, and you can add whatever it is in that point. But the next chapter, which we'll look at next week, just underlines that actually all we have to do now is draw near. Hebrews 10, verse 22, it says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings. Because of Jesus, we can enter in to the very presence of God. The cross is about complete forgiveness, complete access to God, eternal salvation. Let's never diminish it. Let's never try to skirt around it. Let's never try and put other things in the central place that the cross of Christ should have. So down at the end of the chapter, verse 28, He will appear for a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. What incredible hope. What a life changer to say that all we have to do is approach God through Christ. We can know him and we can await his return. Why did Jesus die? Well, we've looked at some of the technical stuff going back into the Old Testament. But let's look at the results. Jesus died so that we can be saved. Jesus died so that we can know eternity with him. Jesus died so that even now we can have very access to God himself. So tonight you may be listening to this and actually you don't know the reality of knowing Jesus in that way. Can I encourage you as we move forward as a church to explore this Alpha course that will be starting soon? Have a look, explore the the claims of Jesus, see who he says he is, see what it says about the cross. But perhaps this evening you have been a Christian for many years. What does it mean then to have that cross-centred life? Is the cross still at the centre? Can he encourage us this evening to be humble, to be thankful, to live with the brokenness of this world, to serve Christ with everything that he has given us, but to be a people who are waiting, ready for when he returns. See, this week, and probably we've heard for many weeks to come, we won't be yet able to gather in our church building. But, you know, that is not the thing that ultimately matters. Because through Jesus, we have very access to the throne room of God himself. So we're going to go into our Zoom conversation in just a moment. Perhaps you'd like to to pick up and have a discussion about what it means to keep the cross central in both our individual lives and in our life as a church. Or perhaps we want to chat through some more of those issues about um, how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So we'll join us on Zoom in just a few moments. But before we do that, I'll lead us in a prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came as the once for all sacrifice. Thank you that we can know our Heavenly Father through what you have done. And thank you for the hope that you've put in our hearts. Just that last verse again. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Amen.